0: Gaming NBS episode 116 Urban Fantasy Adventures. Welcome to Gaming NBS, Tabletop RPG Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Sean.
1: And I'm Brett. Welcome back to the show. Welcome to the show if you are new. Good to have you here. <sighs> so, Sean, we just got out of Thanksgiving here in the U.S. Did you uh have you weighed yourself post Thanksgiving? Did you do a lot of damage?
0: Dude, I have not been taking care of myself and I'm down to 194, which is I think the lowest weight I have been. I don't know, <clears throat> in at least God, I don't know, maybe 15 years. I don't know. Wow. Yeah. Nice job. I don't know what it is, man. It's like, I'm not exercising.
1: Neglected heavy drinking uh, for the win, right? (laughs) I'm
0: stupefied, actually.
1: For me, uh, it's goofy because Thanksgiving is usually like this huge gluttonous thing and whatever. And because this is a hardcore hunting season for me. So when I go in the woods, if it's 20 degrees out, like it was a couple times in Michigan and down here, i will bring a ton of food. And I sit there all day. So burning to calories, walking, dragging deer like I did last night and so forth. I'm down 10 pounds. From where I started in October between October to now, I am ten pounds down. Yeah, normally I circle around two forty, I'm down to two thirty, which is normal for the hey, time. of year. Buddy.
0: And you're looking fabulous, buddy. Fabulous. I know,
1: I know. As are you. <laughs> yeah. So well, now that we're done doing that. Each before beauty, I guess. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> All right, from an announcements perspective, Evercon is coming up in January. We've talked about this, or I've talked about this a ton of times. January's going to come. It's going to come really fast, folks. So evercon.org, go out there, take a look. We're, we've got Kevin uh, Lovecraft can help us do some games on demand stuff. We've got uh, Badger State Games tournaments. We've got video game stuff in that space. We've got board games. We've got RPGs. We've got Ken Height coming. Dave McGarry, the guy who made the dungeon board game. A lot of cool stuff. So should be fun. Thank you, thank you. Any questions or anything, hit us out on our different communities, ask me. Um, Feel free to uh, ask uh, at the Evercon Facebook page or email Evercon itself, everconlc at gmail.com. And chances are you'll still be talking to me because I'm the guy that mans those things most of the time. But anyway, hope to see some BSers up there this year. And Sean, we uh, we did update our patron levels. We talked about this the last couple of times. Anything new and improved in the patron level world or... Because I think the first goal was I have to do an episode without cussing. Are we close to that?
0: Uh, oh, I should probably check. I don't. I don't believe so. I
1: hope it notifies
0: me because I don't go there every every day. But
1: oh, okay.
0: Yeah, we'll see. I don't <clears throat> know.
1: All right. So, uh, so heads up: this episode one sixteen. We have not checked yet. So I'll probably say shit, damn hell, or fuck at some point. So there we go.
0: Yeah, there you go. Just get them out of the way.
1: Just get them out of the way. Get them out of the way. Any other announcements, there, Sean?
0: I thought I had one that I was supposed to comment on, but I don't. I I keep failing to put it up there. I don't. I can't
1: recall what it is. No, I don't think so. John poached another guy from my office. That was kind of (laughs) cool. It's all all, damn recruiters. All part of the job. It's all part of the dance. It's all who you know. It's all who you know, or who knows you. Yeah, pretty much. Shall we random encounter it? Yeah, do it.
0: Random encounter, element segment of the show, where we field emails, voicemails, comments from social media. Got a few this week, a relatively a few shorter, because there's a bigger gap between shows, actually. Yeah. Brett. So there's, that's the reason why we have quite a few. And then we have, so we've got Spencer, the mongrel.
1: And a half hour later, we'll be back. <laughs> right. <laughs> <The show. laughs> Tony. Chris. I think you read the mongrels last one. I'll read this one. So you start with Spencer and I'll go. Guy Carson and Mumphrey. Sweet. All right. Start her off.
0: Okay. Spencer drops us a line on Google plus link of the show notes. Hi, Brett. Hi, Sean. I'm planning on starting up a new campaign, which I will be co GMing with my wife. I'm usually the GM for our group, but we have a one year old and it has been difficult to get my wife to play get my wife play time when she's handling the baby. So we thought if we take turns, we can each have time at the table. Do you have any recommendations for running a game with two GMs?
1: Thanks. I had commented to Spencer out there and I said, yes, I have done this in the past. And I asked him what kind of game he was going to run. And then I went out uh, deer hunting and I kind of lost track of where everybody was and what was going on. I see some other folks out there had uh, talked to him about that. So here's a quick bit from my world. Is that to me, Spencer? If I'm when I'm doing that, Sean and I were going to go co GM something. One, I would pick a system that we both know really well. If we both say, Hey, we're 5e guys, or we're Savage Worlds, or Fate, or whatever, we want to run this. We can both run it together. We both like the system, and our players will like it. Great, we'll go do that. I would try to or tend to <clears throat> run them, assuming one night is for one person and one night is for another person. Uh, if you go that route, like, Hey, Sean runs the first one, and then Brett runs the second session. You can do connected one-shots, right, where Sean takes the scene from the town. Um, when your dungeon crawlers are in the town, get the information, and then tag. Brett gets tagged in. I take over and I get them to the lost keep of Sarak, the Demulich. Great. I get them through that. Um, pass it back to Sean and, and so forth. You kind of walk your way through a storyline. Passing notes and <clears throat> what else you might have to do there. Now, if you're actually talking about co-GMing during the same session, right, Sean and I both behind the screen, you and your wife, Spencer, Spencer, Mr. and Mrs. Clark behind the screen, that can be trickier. I did that a couple of times, the most successful I ever had was with my buddy, JR. We did a old, um, old school werewolf game by White Wolf uh, back in the 90s, and there were so, I had so many people, I had like 13, 14 players at the time, and it was a kind of a, kind of, kind of a, is a. Well, if anybody's ever played it, you know it's fairly kind of looted and has a lot of math and just annoyance to it from a system perspective. (sighs) So what we did was we kind of broke out main NPCs and certain parts of story plots. I gave some of them to JR. They were his purview. He did whatever he wanted in there, and I did whatever I wanted in the rest of them. At the end of every session, we got together, compared notes, and said, oh, you need to change this. Oh, you should do that. Oh, I want to do this thing, but I'm not sure. Um, what would, what do you think we should do? Kind of did a little compare contrast. We would also take periodic breaks throughout the session itself to do a quick checkpoint and make sure that neither one of us was going too crazy. But I think it can be, um, I think it can be a lot of fun and can alleviate some pressure. And as long as you don't try to go into some crazy in-depth conspiracy thing where it's really, sometimes that shit's hard enough for one man and woman to balance, right? some. You know, if I'm doing this thing, I'm doing it really well. And Angela's a really good game master. She could do the same thing really well. But she and I both trying to kind of be on top of each other with plots and who's in charge of different things. Depending on, again, the story you're running or the system, it can be complicated. So I guess um, my first question was, what system are you running? Um, I would say pick one you both like. And number two is, are you trying to each run at the same time or is it like alternating sessions? And from there, I think we could make other recommendations or stuff. Sean, have you ever done that?
0: I I did have a co-GM opportunity um, some time ago where a buddy of mine and I were going to kind of handle that. But what really ended up happening was I ran the front end and sat down with the group, presented everything, ran it pretty much like a regular GM. And then he did all the prep work. So he gave all the maps and the encounters and the overall plot. And I just presented it a lot of handouts and all that. So he did all the legwork. So he was your screenwriter
1: behind the scenes.
0: He was my screenwriter. Yeah, screenwriter. Kind of, like
1: the guy, kind of like the guy writing jokes for Jerry Lewis during the old telethons. You know.
0: Yeah, I was the director. I guess I don't know. There you go. Right. So yeah, it is tricky. You gotta. I don't think it's impossible. People do it. I think you just have to have it organized well.
1: Absolutely, and I think if it's if it's a matter of you know. You both want to do it at the same time, as I said, versus tag one person in, tag one person out, or somebody does the prep work, or however you want to do it. The other piece is that if one of you is in front of the screen at some point while the other one is behind, uh, my preference is usually playing an NPC, like a shared NPC. If Sean and I were doing it together, we'd say, hey, look, we're both going to be you know Morlock the Mage, and Morlock the Mage is our NPC. We know how he should operate here, and we will play him with the group um that way we're both passing the same person back and forth we see how he plays what he does and all that good stuff and it's very clearly an npc and he doesn't steal the limelight or anything crazy like that you make sure you don't do anything silly that way where suddenly the game master's npc the gm npc is like the coolest mother on the planet and that's not fun yeah Any- anything else there no All right. All right. Let me take a drink here. Mongrel's coming. Hang on. Ah, Sean, steal your nerves, my son. All right. Dear lads of gaming and BS, I refer to episode 115, Gods and RPGs, and just wanted to say since that episode posted, I've received vision signs and otherworldly messages. You lads are currently on the shit list of the gods. Well, whatever. Been there. Yeah, I think, you know, as I've said before, if you're doing something, you don't receive a cease and desist, you're not trying hard enough. So I think this is, in gamer terms, the same effect. So we're doing it right.
0: Yeah, no bad publicity is always good publicity.
1: Yeah, no such thing as bad publicity. Yes, that's the the saying. <sighs> yep. So entrusted with the sacred task and finally giving the deities they're just due in fantasy RPGs, all the pantheons felt like you have dropped the holy ball. So let's start, though, with what you got right. Oh, that's nice. He's going to let, let us know we did something. We nice. got something right. Yep, it happens. Once in a blue, sun shines on a dog's ass every mm-hmm. once in a while. Yeah. You are correct when you say that using real-world religions in-game can be fraught with danger regarding upsetting or offending players. At your own table, this is easier to judge as you know your players, but at a convention, you'd be dicing with random encounters of, of the spiritually offended if you started adapting real-world beliefs to game settings. I maybe agree with that. It's potential. Um, When I should, well, I just, I guess I'm saying it's not he seems to think it's more dangerous than I do in that case.
0: Anyway. Well, he's agreeing that we did it well. Oh, so true. This okay, is something yeah, we I was touched already, on. I was already, we I was touched on, and mind. he's saying, yes, that's a very good point.
1: Uh, I was in defensive mode there already. Sorry.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> I just let, i was ready to fight back.
0: Let the guard down, man. Let the guard down. <laughs> all right. All right. Hang on. Let me loosen back up here.
1: All right. <laughs> While the use or even the notion or mention of gods in a modern or science fiction game is rare, they can still have their place for the setting to feel Of a place or NPC, if those places and people are religiously orientated in some way, as you alluded to. Nice work, lads. Now let's talk fantasy. First, Sean P. Kelly gets the BS call. Dude, give me a cleric player a number of passes. (laughs) Give me a cleric player a number of passes to ignore or even offend the deity their character is, quote unquote, devoted to and receive all their gifts and powers from. Oh, hell no. A cleric, paladin, or other priestly type that goes against the express teachings and modus operandi of their deity and church is not something they should just get a whoops, my bad, I'll do better next time on. You want power? You walk the path, buddy. Admittedly, there are varying degrees. Wait a minute
0: now. I did mention that. True. I said, hey, if these guys dick around and they're not doing the the calling that, you know, you can strip them of their powers. It may be a heavy hand that some people may not like it. So if Mongro disagrees with... My levity, like maybe not heavily enforcing that, then I can understand.
1: But yeah, I think uh, I think what we're seeing here from our down under brother is that he is more of the look. If this is what you're into, you're gonna get hit up front and hard. And I think what we had stated, and I still believe this, is that as long as the players know that up front, they're like, look, this is how clerics work in this world. Um, you don't get loosey goosey. Don't be a dickhead about this because if you are, you're gonna get a you know diaterial smackdown.
0: You didn't want me to read this because you didn't want me to try out my New Zealander accent, did you?
1: Maybe. <laughs> I'll give you the last half. Admittedly, there will be various degrees of sin or offense, but there should always be a penalty that matches the uh, the value of the transgression. No free passes and no turning the other cheek. If not for the sake of the worship deity's reputation, then do it so the players respect and, uh, the cause and effect parameters of the setting they're playing in. Well, So the last thing I'll say here, though, is that that, again, depends on how deities work in your world, right? Yeah, they could be all forgiving. Yeah, I mean, if you uh, worship a deity that is like, oh, you know what? Oops, my bad. Hey, dude, just careful. Easy now, easy now. Not all deities are thunder, lightning, and death, right? They're not all just going to come down and wail on you. Some of them are quite forgiving, I would assume.
0: Yeah, I think there's uh, there can be a trial period. It can be whatever you want it to be. You could be heavy-handed. You could be trial period. You could...
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, whatever. Kind of run this show here. Exactly. Yeah. All right, now he's coming for me. Mr. Brett B. Mr. Young Brett B. Ooh, he thinks I'm young. Gods are a major component of all fantasy settings. In many instances, they are driving force behind, well, everything that happens in the setting. Admittedly, some fantasy settings and stories give the gods a hands-off approach to the affairs of mortals. But almost every fantasy setting, the gods have some role to play. My post is the message from Mongoltron. I was asking the community how gods and their worshipers could uh, better uh, utilize the, be better utilized to improve the feel of game settings and to add flavor to the games played. Here are a couple things I <clears throat> hope to hope a follow up episode will examine. Day-to-day existence, like real world days of yore, the gods are central to the culture, of the peoples of a fantasy setting. Worshiping gods are not just about faith. It's a way of enforcing laws, explaining the natural world, weather, birth, death, natural occurring events, and a system of politics. If the weather was good and the harvest was bountiful, the gods were happy and pleased with followers. If a storm destroyed anything, the gods were thought to be pissed at some transgression and were taking out retribution. In a fantasy setting, this is probably is probably the reality as opposed to the superstition. Laws were enforced for the most part because unlawful acts went against the religious teachings of the time. Again, in fantasy setting, this is more likely to be a reality. The division between – sorry?
0: So he – this is all good stuff, but, you know, as far as I'm concerned, this is all player shit, man. Yeah,
1: a lot of it. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, when has a cleric
0: ever done any of this crap?
1: Yeah, I mean, you you can beat a person down with it, like saying, hey, you're not doing this, therefore you're playing wrong.
0: Well, I just think that, that player characters, if they want to role play and they play a cleric, like yeah, yeah, yeah. all this is, all this is, you know, Hey man, go nuts. Like, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. man. Hail freaking fire and brimstone and, and you're going to pay and you're, you know, bringing the Inquis- inquisition and, you know, yeah. Praise the Lords. Cause the uh, weather was great and
1: bountiful harvest and. And it's a fun plot point for NPCs, right? Where the one priest from one faith decides to get up, uppity with the priest from the other faith because, oh, everyone's worshiping, you know, Yig, the snake god, and therefore that's why our crops all failed. You should come over here and worship Yandala because, hey, that's where it's at. So that's another piece that could be played that can play into there, or which the, again makes for good plot points. And
0: the so the on. town hasn't been paying the homage, and you know that's why they've got a drought. You know, it's, they're they're not worshiping hard enough.
1: Exactly. But- all right, he goes on to say laws were enforced for the most part because unlawful law acts went against religious teaching at the time. Okay, yes, the division between law and state was very muddy in our past, with the church having great power, or even even over the ruling classes. I'd argue that it does even today in modern settings. Well, that's not – yeah.
0: So not I'm getting today. into that shit. That's a whole yeah, can of worms. That's,
1: that's a whole different podcast. Um, we, we, all, we went to, we're going to hell in that podcast. Anyway, today, in fact, religion still has a large part. Ooh, he agrees to play in shaping the policies and political parties in a fantasy setting. A ruler defies the deity and their representatives. You better believe shit is about to get real again, though. This is about the type of fantasy setting you're running. And I think to really dig into this, we would have to have a better discussion around the gods in your fantasy setting. And how they're supposed to work. In my Avalon world, there are no gods. The gods are a concept and a thing that people believe in, but they don't exist.
0: It's one of those heathen campaigns. Yes,
1: But once you understand that, you're like, oh, I get it. This is how this works. And to your point, Sean, I can role play within that space. But it's not the – this standard does not apply there. It does not apply in every world. Anyhow, as you can see, the possibility that the gods and religions would play a major component – in at least the aesthetics of the game setting, and even if they are not the driving force, of, even excuse me, if they are not the driving force of the adventure, every village would have a p- uh, place of worship and at least one spiritual advisor. Local NPCs could conceivably drop the name of the god or gods when describing anything from the seasonal changes to giving thanks for a daily meal. Religion would influence architecture, meals, clothes, the way people understand what's happening. In almost every game I played in, no matter how much information is provided in text regarding religions and the gods, they're rarely brought up. Or given any attention beyond the powers they can provide a player or character, or the priest of God X wants the party to retrieve a sacred item. So that tells me that you, Mongrel, are the person in that game group who gives a shit about it. Nobody else cares.
0: Well, that's just it, right? That's kind and of like
1: the- to, that. That's your earlier point. It's role playing. If the game master doesn't make it a thing, it's not real, because reality's at the table. If it's in a write-up, no one gives you shit if it doesn't happen at the table.
0: I think it's a tango, man. Two to tango, brother.
1: Yeah, I mean, the Game Master's got to bring it, and the players have to say, look, I worship this deity, and uh, Andala's all about hearth and home, and uh, my little halfling self is not just going to go help out Maradin. That's just not how this goes. You know, I get it. I get what he's saying, and I think it is... <clears throat> Sometimes too often DDs and the religious portions can get short shrift in a fantasy setting, but I blame more of the, you can have mechanics. I blame the, playing player.
0: Playing the, blame the yeah, player, blame the playing player, blame the
1: player, players and game masters. I think I've got a point at them. Now, don't get me wrong. He says, I'm not an advocate, advocating of ramming made up religions down your player's throats every time they talk to NPC, but used judiciously, I believe they can make the game setting that much more immersive. I would absolutely agree. He's got some examples here, like in the village of uh, Marantar, just another place with a tavern and so forth, um, really comes alive. However, if the tavern bar has an always full tankard of ale on display to honor Cymax, the goddess of the harvest, so she continues to show her people favor with bountiful hops harvests, well, to the idiot who tries to get a free beer. The store in the town refuses to sell or buy any meat products on Sim days, and no one in the town eats anything but barley broth on that day out of respect for uh, Simax. Uh, People are offended if visiting PCs try to start eating jerky or other supplies and so forth. Blacksmith stamps everything he makes with the mark of Carmaron, the god of steel and forges. He sings a song of worship as he works. Uh, Blacksmith is a perfectionist. If you dare insult his work, he sees it not as a slight to him, but to the deity as well. Um. Same with like city gates painted a certain color, guards dressed um, to uh, behave in a certain way, the symbology and so forth. I'm not going to go through all the examples that he's given here. However, as he says in the examples, religion is a backdrop making sense and giving the the region character. This is not about forcing religion into the narrative, but to give the setting a sense of character and that lived in feel. The modern fantasy setting, uh, adding these things can make the scenes memorable. <clears throat> Again, You know, we talk about the God. He's got some examples in here about, um, you know, visiting an NPC house. You turn uh, left instead of right when heading um, to a room. You're confronted with an imaginary uh, God of justice, set of medieval armor. um, They're Cthulhu worshipers um, and the way they love to dress their basements (laughs) and so on. But our uh, our real world ancient religions, Norse Greek, Roman, depicted the gods as very human in temperament and in many cases, very hands-on regarding the affairs of mortals. In many ways, mortals were no more than playing pieces on a game board for the gods to manipulate as they saw fit. In your game settings, um, how do the gods themselves interact, guide, or manipulate PCs and the NPCs alike? In closing, the Soapbox soapbox got another Brett and Sean stamp. Well, tell you, Mongrel, what you've got here is good stuff. And I think what you're doing is taking our discussion to the next level or the next stage, if you will. It's like, okay, now let's assume that we have gods active in the world, Right. In a fantasy setting, how do we want to play them? I still would go back and say, How is the world designed as a game master? And are you at what level are you prepared to bring that to the table? As Sean and I alluded to, because it's both the players and the game masters have to bring it because reality is at the table. It doesn't matter what you've written down, what you've talked about on your G community or a group or whatever, unless it's happening at the table where you're talking about gods and so on. And again, a good way to do it to add character to those regions. When you meet that alien race or you meet that farmer or that town, and they have, the, they have the beer there, they've got the different things. The blacksmith is a very devout worshiper of a god. Those are great flavor components. And they're really, really good ways to, as you and I alluded to last time as well, to give a world a lived-in feel and make it seem a little more real. So I think it's good stuff.
0: Yeah, absolutely good stuff. And no question, I would, I sincerely... I'm with him, man. If I were to sit there and want to list that out, that's the way I would go about doing it. Just that I never, I very, very rarely see anybody at the table, play a cleric to <laughs> that, to that degree.
1: They just don't. Yeah, I've got a couple I of guys. Think, in I my just
0: play. Group. I don't know, oh, man. But, well, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Brett.
1: I was going to say, I got a couple of guys in my group who love playing clerics or druids and those folks, but there's only a couple of them. They get into it at that level. But most times, most, a lot of folks that I have seen in my experiences don't. Um, but I think it's, it's an opportunity, perhaps an oft-missed opportunity for players and game masters like to really delve into something and build and do some world building at the table. Thanks, Mongrel. Thanks, man. Always good to hear from you, F- sir. Thanks, Mongrel. There you go. There you go.
0: Next. is a good email. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Tony, Tony Baker Candlestick Maker.
1: Was that you or him? That was me. <laughs> and we lost Tony. Carry no,
0: on. <laughs> Tony. I mean, i told Tony that Chris' All made right. Chris's buddy, he said, "Call him Tony Baker, gamer, candlestick maker." Anyways, here's a, to- a topic for discussion. What? I hate Hero Lab. I hate the level of optimization it puts on the game. Specifically, talking Pathfinder here. I would be curious what other people's experiences and thoughts are. Now, this has already gotten quite a bit of comments, including myself. Mm-hmm. So I think it's kind of it, probably at this point, if somebody goes on there and wants to chime in, I, I don't know if it's resolved necessarily, but my take with Tony's question, uh, so I probably won't get into too much of about it cause I don't have the whole thread in front of me, but essentially what I was getting at to kind of explain my point of view when I replied to him was, is it hero lab Or is it the game?
1: Yeah, is it the... um, Is it the tool? Yeah, is it away from the table power gaming format style, the old 3.5 slash Pathfinder min maxi approach that people can take or the way the game is designed? Or do you just hate the Hero Lab tool?
0: (laughs) Right, because I think if you hate the Hero Lab tool, I think a better substantiated argument for not liking that tool is maybe the interface, maybe the lack of, or what it does
1: not well? well. I think what he doesn't like is what he's, he hates the level of, quote-unquote, optimization it puts on the game. And I think it's that piece where when you have software that will automatically tell you, Hey, Brett, you're playing Sean's Pathfinder game. You're missing five points of feats. Go get that. Hey, um, you haven't allocated... Enough stuff to your skills. And, hey, by the way, your uh, synchronicity bonus is now up by five. And, oh, by the way, did you know, checks and balances of a system doing that can, I think he's saying, encourage people to think in a power gaming format.
0: So why I agree exactly with your assessment of Tony's post, Brett. Mm -hmm. That is not the root cause. No, Hero Lab isn't the problem. No, it isn't. It's the game now. Hero Lab will help facilitate that, but like yeah, I,
1: it's a major component of the game,
0: right? But it's like Hero Lab also has Savage Worlds. It also has Shadow Run. It also has, I think, Five E Three Five, probably Four E World of Darkness. There's lots of different systems that it encompasses. Where Savage Worlds is not, even when you use Savage Worlds in Hero Lab, you're not going to get some. It's Savage Worlds is just not a power gamey system necessarily.
1: No, I think I think you're right. There's more to do with the game itself. The other piece, though, that I think maybe underlying within here is that when you mechanize a thing, you know, sometimes it takes away some of the human element and um, people putting time into things. When you kind of slap dash a character, like, look, I made the ultimate dwarven fighter. There's no character to that character because you simply followed an optimization path. Now, again, is that probably that's the way that game is designed. Optimize your fucking character because otherwise you're going to get your ass handed to you. Um, But when you do use a tool that kind of taps you along that line where you can play Pathfinder, as you and I and other people have done. Any more role play, fuck the optimization approach. It can be done.
0: Yes, it can,
1: but it can (coughs) also go the opposite way without the tool. Absolutely. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the tool, when you're using a tool like that, that calls out when you're on or off or what you have extra and so forth, a tool sometimes mechanizes a thing and makes you think more one plus one is two. I get plus three plus this, you know, thinking that world versus what would my character like or that type of thing. So I play, I get get what he's saying.
0: I played Pathfinder once I was running uh, the pirates one. I can't remember the pirate campaign
1: arc. Um, Pirates sh- of Penz Pirates of Penzance, Skull and Shackles, and the very model of a modern major general.
0: We were at pro- we had like at least five players at the table, and they were all making characters as I was kind of dicking around, waiting and reading and prepping. And I took, I said, "Are you done?" "Yep, I'm all done." I took it. I said, "Let me see it," and I plugged it in Hero Lab. And I don't think there was only one person out of the five that actually made the character correctly.
1: <laughs> ah, that's how convoluted the system is.
0: I mean, literally, some people were like, "Hey, man, you didn't have enough skill points, or you didn't spend enough." There was, and it wasn't always good, or I mean, it was not always bad. It was sometimes good. Like, holy cow, I had three more skill points I didn't even, I wasn't even aware of.
1: So, and, oh shit, I got an extra feed. I shouldn't have that now. Yeah, that too. right,
0: yes. So, but there was only one person that paid enough attention to detail to actually create a character correctly. Not even, like, not even min-maxing. Just making
1: sure you... Just spend all points in the right places. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. Anyways. That's that's the one reason I don't play that game. (sighs) Anyway, I would... This is actually... It's kind of interesting, and it goes to some of the technology components. Sean and I talked about technology at the table ages back. Much earlier episode. Back in single digits, I think. And um, that might be worth a revisit at some point. Kind of the technology components, so... Yeah, it's good, Tony. I'm glad. I'm glad you threw that out there, man. Because it, I thought it spawned a pretty good discussion, a uh, decent back and forth on the old G plus community. I agree. Next up, Edwin talks about his chain of command situation on G plus. He said we've been playing an Akhtung Cthulhu game over the past several months. It's been interesting to see what happens to chain of command as commanders die and the rest of us are far away from communications. At one point, the British Special Forces team that was being led by a 12 year old Tibetan boy. Um, having the desks and splitting the party have allowed the lower ranking members to take charge from time to time. And when we're all together, we've managed to provide advice to the leader and then enjoy taking his or her bad decision as we march over onwards towards our doom. I think that, <laughs> and what you're saying there is awesome to me. That's exactly what it should to have it work and work. Well, um, you don't want to have that, you know, asshole man or woman running the show and where they're just kind of, like we said, throwing everybody in the brig all the time or chopping off their heads. Um Especially in a Cthulhu game, you know, kind of making the best of the situation. You think about a behind enemy lines deal, you know, you and your squad and all that's left and the highest ranking guy is the buck private. Cause that's all that's there or, you know, or whatever. There's um there's some interesting play involved. It sounds like you guys have a really good setup there. So that is cool. I like it. Yes. Next. The next Chris user
0: Chris Shorb touches on the age piece in RPGs on G+ a bit behind bit a bit behind but your episode on aging got me intrigued with this idea standard fantasy the party starts all starts as all fighter types with high physical traits strength and con run some adventures then take an in-game break of say 20 to 25 years. Come back, and the party is reunited, but all spellcasters. Subtract some from their physical attributes and add to their mental, int, and wisdom. They've all changed in the interim to be able to harness arcane technology or primal or divine power. Or if playing 4E, a warlord. Nice. They'll be multi-class, and that will be great.
1: I like that idea. That's really cool. That could actually be a fun... um... Fun like a two part con game, you know? Yeah. I think about Nick Nick Ambrosio running his big ass first ed game. You know, if you ran another massive one like that for the first half of a four hour session run for two hours and then say, okay, give me your character sheets. Here's you in 20 years. We're going to pick back up. We just got the band back together. That would be a lot. uh, That would be a lot of fun. Not only at a con game, but I think that's a damn good idea, Chris. I like it. I will probably steal that idea and use it. All right. Uh, on Twitter, um, Mumfrey nine ninety nine questioned us and said, "Could you recommend the best edition of Vampire: The Masquerade to get into for a beginner? I want to try that game." Who? Uh, well, I would say um, drive through RPG and get the twentieth anniversary edition, and that is where you start. That's the best variation. It's the cleanest rule set. It has the nicest compilation of kind of where things are. I think that's the best one to go with. Uh, Papa Joe Swick, if you're listening to this one, step in and tell me if you agree or not. Joe and I uh, both share love for the older uh, White Wolf system there. But I believe for a beginner, the 20th anniversary edition would be the one to go with. Well, Sean, what would you What would you do?
0: I defer to you, man. <laughs> I have no, no World of Darkness history experience exposure why why that one brett
1: um that one has enough of as i said it's original world of darkness it has the the clans the powers the things that made that game that game but it is better organized and coordinated it's much like if someone said hey i want to play first edition ad and d what's a good rule set to get what should i just go buy the old books i'd be go get osric Go get Osric. You can play the game. You'll understand it. It's better written. It's better organized. The rules make a little more sense. Been cleaned up and tweaked in the right places. So that's the same reasoning for me behind that. And I reach out again to uh, Papa Joe Swick to see if he's got a thought as well. So And anybody else out there who's a World of Darkness fan, let uh, speak up. Let me know. I could be wrong. And if so, we will uh, let Mr. Mumphrey999 know and point him at something else.
0: Uh, we, next one, we featured, this is just a editorial or a, uh, correction. Uh, we featured a die roll for edge of the empire, uh, Marvel hack.
1: Oh, and that's right. Yeah.
0: Originally linked to Oricon's lair website, but I think they were doing an article on the person who was actually doing it, which is, uh, David White's blog. And so David was, in, and they all mentioned like, Hey, you linked to to us, but it's really David who did all the work. Oh, so he was the person that came up with the hack that we're talking about. I'll put in a link in the show notes that goes directly to David's blog and give him proper credit. Thanks. absolutely, And thanks for doing that, David and, uh, Oricon's lair author website for pointing that out.
1: Absolutely. Um, next up, Carson B email us to get some suggestions on Savage worlds. And he writes back to us via email. Um, hello again. Thanks a lot for the input. As I did not know, there were so many Savage Worlds stuff to run. Right now, I think I'm going to play Atomic World, which is still free. I think episode 35-ish. And I'm loving the V6 system. It's simply a quick action where I can let my imagination run to make up the whole story. I do have a comment about the money episode 46. Good lord, Carson's digging back. I think the bartering puts your players more in-depth, making them think about how they're going to get things that are needed. This can create more of a hoarder player, but it makes them think more. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, honestly, Carson, I don't think you're wrong. I think having barter periodically, especially in, um, situations of dire straits out in the country, places where money may may not have any value. You're in a desert. They don't give a shit about gold. Water is much more valuable. It's, it's a good way to, again, kind of like the Mongol was pointing out with religion. It's another good way to make the world a living thing. Um, Carson continues with, I also, I think it's a smart idea to change up what stuff costs in different cities. A magic item would cost 10 gold, but two cities over, it could cost 25 because there are no mages to make them. If you have a mage, maybe you can barter for, uh, for the armor if you'll be make some wands or something. I think this adds depth to the game. Is this a good thing to implement in your games? By the way, I'm, I'm on episode 51. And thank you so much for all the help and advice. Um, Sean, I would say Carson's idea is good. I like the idea of different costs in different cities. It's sometimes a bit of a hassle from the game master when the players want to go on a shopping spree and they're like, does everything just cost what's in player's handbook? Like, yeah, 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 whatever. Just go buy, buy whatever's there. Just tell me what you want to buy and I'll whatever. Um, I've done it in the past where I've said everything swords and armor in this town are 20% markup for the PHB. Like, holy cow, it's expensive here. Yes, it's expensive here because of whatever reasoning again, to add flavor to the world. Have you done that Sean, where you've changed the value stuff from locale to locale?
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. Based on rarity, just jack it up.
1: Yeah, you live somewhere where there's you know very little magical healing, no spell casting clerics, and somebody wants a potion of healing. Shit's expensive. Indeed, it, you know, just not laying around. That's right. And cool. Yeah. Well, Carson, thanks for still listening, man. Be uh, episode fifty-one in, so that's really, really awesome. Spo- I appreciate hey, you, Spoilers.
0: Spoilers. We're talking about urban fantasy when you get here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like he won't even <laughs> listen to his own comment until like
1: hundred episodes later. Oh, that's true. Oh, <laughs> I feel bad now. Kind of. <laughs> it's, it's like he wrote to the future. Yeah. To the future, man. That's funny. I didn't think about that. <laughs> hey, future Carson, we like to cut of your jib, Sailor. Good job. That's right. All right. <laughs> what urban fantasy adventures. Yeah, we've talked about this. Kind of ties into a couple of different things we've talked about, like different towns and locations, and kind of as Carson was saying. And again, he won't hear this for another year. I'll <laughs> some <for one laughs> to listen to us until um, he gets sick of our shit and comes back. Anyhow, talking about uh, urban city adventures in fantasy games. I want to stick specifically in the fantasy realm. The reason this was coming to my mind is my Avalon world is very centered around the city of Avalon. It's this massive, massive construct, and um, thinking about why. I like that type of thing and how I kind of cut my teeth running vampire within you no know, hey, cities are really cool places. Lots of interesting things can happen. However, sometimes in my fantasy games, people are like, Oh, I don't like city adventures. All oh, you always, the, always this, always that. And my goal with my Avalon world was to try to make the city urban setting, even a smaller town, more interesting. What could happen or what's going on in this small area or larger area and so on. So that's kind of what I want to talk about. So make sense.
0: It does make sense, Brett.
1: So Sean, I just let cat the bag with my first question. Yeah, I've I have used a city location, an urban place for the main place for an entire campaign. Have you ever done that? Like just a complete campaign? And I'm not talking one shot, two shots a month, you know, or whatever, but you know, think your traditional campaign, a massive story arc of some kind. Have you done that in just in an urban setting where they've never left the city? Or a town or whatever.
0: I don't think I've ever run straight urban like like that, no. I think it's been a component, but never never a huge emphasis in that respect. So why have you not done it? Uh I think it's kinda tricky because usually adventures there's,
1: there's always so many train tracks you can get into a town. I mean, at a certain point. Sorry.
0: <laughs> That's true.
1: <laughs> Unless they got some sort of a elevated rail system, it's or a subway, it's tough to get around.
0: Eberron, man.
1: Eberron, there Lightning you go. rail. There you
0: are. I, I think it's because, um, I mean, I have Tolus. That thing is a freaking beast.
1: Yeah, you could kill a man with it. You could drop that on uh, the, your new floor in your uh, in your place there and put a dent in your new floor with that
0: For thing. For those of you that are not familiar with Tolus, it's Monty Cook's tower, or is it a city by the spire, which is like what he did was he put it out, through Mahalavik Press, it's about, I don't know, 900 pages. It's just this big, huge. It's got like, it's like five ribbons in it.
1: Yeah, it makes, it makes a Pathfinder core. It's like two Pathfinder core books stacked on top oh, of Oh, at other. least. At least. Yeah, yeah, it's just jai-fucking-gantic.
0: And the, and the thing about it is, is that Mani published it using kind of the 3-5 rules-ish. I mean, it was, it was kind of his – it was his home campaign. He just put it together and published it and put it in a book. And it's all urban, and so I have that. I haven't run it, and the way he talks about his setting—not to make this all about his setting, because there's city, Sharn, city of towers, and Eberron—but he is uh, very. It's high magic. Undead could be walking down the street, um, but it all takes place in the city. And I haven't done that because I—I I don't know, man. I think it's just too beca- big. Uh, I don't, I don't, well, the game, Tolis is, yes, I think it's just too much to know and map out and there's probably some seeds you kind of can pull out of it. Okay. But I think I haven't run it because when I run fantasy, I'm usually having them adventure all over the place because to me that travel and going from one location to the next kind of builds upon that. Now I know one can argue that you do that in same in a big city, but to me, I don't know, man. I never, never found cities. I think if you live there long enough, I don't know if oh, I, I get it. I get it. I think it. I get a kick out of like I'm going somewhere I don't know, and it, you know, and somebody could argue, well, you don't know the entire city. Well, I'm talking Little about part. going to the like,
1: like, yeah, you know, the, the mountains at the you know the Dragon Spine Mountains far to the west or whatever. I mean, I've never fucking been there. I'm gonna go see the dwarves or something.
0: The Lord of the Rings didn't all take place in the Shire. No. Or, been, or boring as fuck. Right. Well, that's a bad example because it's really small, but I'm talking even breathing no, or, yep. you know,
1: Rowan. We'll tell you the, the, um, <clears throat> excuse me, to your point there, I think you could do small locations for, uh, an urban adventure, or you could do larger, larger ones to me. Um, were like, man, it has to be big. It's gotta be at least Chicago or like escape from New York on a big fucking city, you know, escape from LA. All walled off. I want this crazy insanity. Um, When I build those type of worlds, like I did with Avalon, was I built it the same way I build kind of a dungeon world approach, if you will. Dungeon world was not at the time, but the whole concept of leave blanks. There's a north, south, dockward, east gate, west gate, north of where the nobles are, big chunks of stuff. And you take a portion of the city and you start the campaign there. And the players do their thing; they muck about, and then they eventually want to go to a, the east or the west. They've got to go to the center of the city by the clock tower. There, or they want to go to the north and deal with the nobles for some reason. And then you, much like, <coughs> excuse me, like a Lord of the Rings or a Shannara or anything like that, or fuck World of Time, you take your characters and you push them across the city, and then you develop pockets of it as you go. You don't have to do a Monte Cook Tolus um, and build everything where it's all detailed out or all this great information, you can build it piece by piece as you go through. I learned that through the old uh, first edition Lankmar book by uh, TSR. It had Lankmar itself as the city and they had different sections of it that you could take your own. um, I can't remember what it was called, but these little blocks of map that you could uh, cut, paste, spin, twist into different places and make your own city streets and all this good stuff. Um, Anyway, the if you want to have a really long campaign, I think the size of it really does matter. The larger and more diverse the city, the um the more opportunities there are. If it's smaller, um you have you tend to have to scale down your threat sometimes, right? A big threat to a small town are like five trolls. That's fucking bad. Big threat to a massive city, five trolls, they just send the army and they take care of that. That's not a problem. So if you go small, you just need to scale it down. And I think when I have run smaller ones, when it's uh, urban-based, um, to be honest, the small ones tend to then branch out to the surrounding countryside, right? Because you're here in this town or this little village or this small city, and then there's the threat from goblins. There's a threat over here. So you need to go deal with a thing and come back. However, the core of it, is, it tends to be political intrigue. And um, the politicking, the to point back to the Mongol, we've got religious issues in town. You've got there's a food shortage, all that type of stuff that can happen in a fantasy, you know, quasi medieval setting. Um, that stuff happens. Then the player characters have to deal with that in the city. It becomes a place where, yeah, you live there. And you know a lot about it. And you may excuse <coughs> me no damn near every nook and cranny of it. But there's always that opportunity when old man Jenkins dies, somebody goes there to clean out his house and the kids fall through the the floor into a sub basement. like, what is this? And uh, next thing, you know, the player characters are slogging through some crazy crypt that happens to be underneath his house. So there's plenty of opportunities in urban areas to expand out.
0: Does this make sense, Sean? It does. And I agree
1: with you. I,
0: okay. uh, I think the only difference, I think that's the biggest difference between any other type of adventure you want to run in fantasy and strictly urban
1: mm-hmm. is
0: that you do the, the environment and surroundings change. So if mm-hmm. you don't play those up or you do, they're different. And then it goes to what you're saying about more of the intrigue and, and the political kind of that pieces. Was, absolutely.
1: Maybe, I, right. I, I, Absolutely. I cut my teeth on that, as I said, with uh, Vampire of the Masquerade, when you'd have you be in Chicago, Chicago by night, and the prince of the city is there, and he or she is doing these different things. You're all trying to, all these different machinations, you're kind of stuck in this city. You really can't leave. It's t- t- hard for vampires to travel. Um, So the political intrigue, the pressure, the pushing, the this, the, hey, we're trying to, in a fantasy setting, we're trying to cut a deal with this dwarven group of miners, and then there's another group of There's a guild that doesn't want the dwarves in there and somebody's cutting people down or there's an assassination in the street you have to deal with or a rash of burglaries and so on. I think the cool part about your urban settings, for me anyway, if it's large enough or at least complex enough, the people who want to run and play an investigative game where there's political intrigue, they've got to figure out who murdered who, what's going on, what's this plot, we have this magic Box, we found what's in the box. Oh my god, it's this horrible thing. People want it. What's happening? Um, and then you're gonna have that player who's like, I want to kill stuff. Oh my god, I just want to fucking kill stuff. As you said, in a city like Tolis or new fantasy settings, you've got rat men, you've got your were rats, your scaven from Warhammer, you have uh, possibly vampires. I mean, if you look at uh, ghouls, people in. My city of Avalon food is food can be difficult to obtain in the winters and can be harsh and people are very poor. (laughs) I didn't think he would get, I didn't
0: think he would get close enough where the purr would come through the mic.
1: That's funny. Um, Deli. Excuse me, but you can run into that stuff. And then when you want, you've got somebody who wants to, they're like, you know, what would be, would be a good break here. Let's go crawl in a dungeon. Any major city is built on top of something else. Sewers, Rollers, sewers, and the sewers lead to an ancient dwarven hole. They lead to uh, this. Beneath the city is a a dragon. Beneath the city is an undead sorcerer king who's waiting to return. Beneath the city is a beholder who happened you know steals something from um, water deep. And you've got a beholder who's the crime lord of the of the town or um, <clears throat> doppelgangers fucking around with the bards guild or whatever's going on. So you have enough opportunities to thrust monsters in place, have some cool, oh my God, knockdown down, drag out fights. The other thing for me, um, as I've said before on the show, I like lower magic. I don't necessarily like high-end magic games uh, for my fantasy, at least at this point. And when you do that in the city, you don't wear armor, right? It's not easy to just walk around wearing plate mill all the time in a stifling, narrow, um, uh, medieval type of streets. So people are wearing you know cloth or leather and big two-handed swords are not common and people are carrying smaller weapons. And it just, it it puts a different twist on what's important, right? It's not like, well, we're in the woods. I'll just roll. We'll make camp. We'll do this. You can't just sleep on the streets in some parts of the city, right? You can't just do that. You've got town guards. You cause a problem. The freaking Griffins and Avalon are going to come try to find you and say, what the hell did you do? You could get arrested for different things. So again, all the politics and the legalities and everything that can get come in there. Plus the religions. I think it's this great melting pot of gaming, of fantasy coolness that if done right, all happens in a city. And you never have to leave it.
0: No, I agree. And I think that some of the things that you key in on, if you if you change the environment, so instead of wilderness, adventuring across the great land or whatever it is, the plains, and you are in, in small towns or villages, and you're going to go straight urban, big kind of city – environment you have to take what is what makes that a city environment and throw those things at the players or they're going to run into things right so if they're killing things out in the wilderness does that stuff fly in the city you know you mentioned like sleeping on park benches or just sleeping anywhere the watch may not find that cool so anything it, it even equates to like modern day so just take all the modern day stuff that you would not get away with where you're in the, you know, outland or outback of, you know, Canada or Australia or somewhere that's not settled, things are different there.
1: Yeah. I mean, if I go to my fam my cabin in upper Michigan and I want to shoot squirrels with a 22, I can do that all day long. I can't do that in my, I can't do that in my suburb. You know, if, if the squirrels are like raiding the bird feeder and causing damage and I want to, you know, or whatever, if I, want to target practice in my backyard. I can do that up there. I've got a lot of property and space and we can do that. I, I have a hard time doing that in my suburban, you know, regular home. Yeah. And the and squirrels breathe. know that Brett. I know they're, that's why I have to keep fighting them off. They're coming for me anyway. So while, while we're talking about this, I don't want to, it's not all sunshine and roses, right? So the downside to a city adventure or an urban based adventure. And um, again, if it's too small in a way, it might not last your players may get bored in a small area if they feel, hey, there's one bar, one, you know, one bar, one stable, a mayor and a and one church. Is it going to be hard to keep people occupied and busy? You can still have different types of intrigue. You could be stuck there. It could turn into what's this mysterious murder that's happening here. You may have to do an investigation and try to find out who's lying and talk to the, uh, you know, the hermit who lives outside of town. What what she know? And so on. But one of the things that Sean just said that, that really keyed me here, it was the everything has the impact is very real and immediate. You can't just go fuck up candle keep in the forgotten realms and leave. If the adventure is there, you're there. Right. right. If you break the law and you get thrown in prison and then you have to go to trial and get thrown into work camp or whatever happens. And we've talked about imprisoning PCs in the earlier episodes and, uh, and so on, or you, you piss off a church, you piss off the house of Poseidon and Avalon because you're worshiping Shanghai Shen and they don't like you or you made enemies with this guild because the Brotherhood of Sanitary Excavators is sick of you knocking holes in their sewer walls just so you can go find an ancient dwarven and hold. This is a thing that from a game master's perspective and a player's perspective is going to have a regular impact on you. It may not hit you right away, but this is that type of thing that, I learned this again running Vampire, you need to take some notes or make a mental note or write it down or whatever that, hey, Sean and the group just made some enemies. It happens to be the sewer guild. Angela, while she was running around playing with Chris, found out that, hey, this cleric is an alcoholic, and he's the reason why this murder occurred, because he was supposed to be wherever, blah, 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 blah. All that stuff plays, right? Dungeon delves all have real, potentially real-world issues and things that come out of it. You can't just go out into the wilderness um, do something in the hinterlands and then come back. You are essentially in civilized society acting in a very uncivilized manner as adventurers because adventures are fucking insane. You're doing nasty, disturbing things, potentially hunting down ghouls, killing where rats in the streets, dealing with an archmage who's trying to summon zombies. And a lot of people, again, depending how the city is built, that's a big deal. That's a big deal to have to um, cope with. And what's the society around you going to do immediately? Are you a hero? Or are you a goat? That type of swing, the political component of it, um, to make it really seem real, you have to be willing to put that effort into it. Otherwise it just becomes another place where you go through, you know, click on the guy with a bubble above his head and get a quest and go do a thing and come back and find the next one. You want to be a living, breathing thing. You've got to have the characters fuck ups impact them and their good deeds impact them and so forth.
0: Yeah. And you, you got to throw the culture at them. Hardcore. I mean, absolutely it, out absolutely. there, it's, it's, you know, laying around in the mud and dirt and all that stuff and camping and dungeon delving out into the caves or whatever, spelunking. And then you're going to make your way into the city and you get into the wrong part of the city, man, and you're going to stink it up. People don't like- Absolutely. To, yeah. They're going to boot
1: you out because you stink. Now, one way, as I said, building a large city, a large urban environment, um, or any kind of urban environment, honestly, is very similar to it's any other world building, where if Sean's running a game and we're in this new city, you know Everton, and we're in Everton, and Sean says, "So, Brett, um, what do you think they eat here in this section of town?" Um, well, I'm from here, so we eat a lot of fish and this because we're down by the docks and so on. It sourcing the table, as you said, for the culture components is really is really to me very important. It brings the players in because you live here, right? And uh, Chris. Uh, looks at me and says, Yeah, my guy lives here. He grew up on the streets. He's a he's a runner. He lives here. He's kind of a thug, but he's got a heart of gold and blah, blah, blah. Okay, you live here. This is your neighborhood. Um, what's the quickest way to get across town? Because, well, you cut by grandma, uh, cut by grandpa Thompson's boarding house, you go past the bakery and then hang a left at the blacksmith shop. That little piece right there, you know, we named three different locations that my player named for me. That becomes real. And that makes it so that way, if you're from a city, it helps you to establish the, I've been here, I know shit perspective. So I really think sourcing the table helps to do that stuff to bring the culture forward. Because otherwise, if it's just like, here, thud, or, read told us and tell me about the culture, no one's going to want to fucking do that. Nah. So I think that 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 source the table concept is, I'm using it more and more. I'm using it with the uh, Avalon game I'm running now with uh, Chris Nizak, Emily, uh, Tom, and Kevin it's trying to do more of sourcing the table. And I really think it's helping that setting become more alive, that group of players, because now they feel like they're from there. Even, excuse me, if your character isn't from there originally, and I would, and ask a question like, well, you know, Sean, you've never been to Everton or Avalon or Waterdeep before. Where were you from? Well, I was from Suzale. Okay. What's different here? What's the one thing that your character is shocked about? Well, I don't like the fact that they always, you know, the with their the with their right hand, we always eat left-handed. That just throws me every time we sit down to dinner. That's a weird, small, nutty thing, but it makes it real to you. It's a, like you said, a culture piece that really makes those urban settings come alive.
0: Yeah, man, good stuff. All good stuff. Like if you're sorry, I, I
1: kind of totally, I totally monopolized that one on you. I'm yeah, sorry. That's all right.
0: No, but I think it's all good things that people have to consider if they're going to run a street urban. And even if it's maybe an a, maybe it's part of a campaign arc. But you're going to spend a good amount of time in that city. How do you incorporate that versus just Mm -hmm. it's a city setting all the time? The whole campaign is going to take part in Tolis or Charm or or whatever. Waterdeep, yeah.
1: Is there anything about those cities apart from size, or is there something that makes you go ah? It sounds good, but I would never want to do it. Is there something in you that? Or a reason that you wouldn't want to do that? You said you liked my ideas. Is there any reason why you wouldn't use them? Come on. So show. I think tell, the, me. tell the, me to my face, man. I think the
0: biggest hurdle for a city, urban, and it. And I, when are we talking city and urban? I'm talking like a good, like a large city in fantasy. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I think the biggest challenge and biggest hurdle is that it can it can become quite a sandbox. And if you're not prepared as a game master to tackle the whims of the players. Then that's going to be
1: that's going to be tricky. That's a very good point. It's kind of like going to. Um, yeah, show up with in New York City with five of your friends and all five of you have a different idea of where you want to go and what you want to see. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's certainly <laughs> okay. right. Um, Wow. There's a lot of shit to do here. What do I want to do? Um, Yeah, because then if they and then the advantage, of course, is they don't seem to be digging on the whole doppelganger plot. I'm throwing out at them. Um, goblins in the sewers. It is. That's where they're down there. They're in the sewers. It's goblins in the sewers. You have an opportunity to bounce, but you're right. It's, it's very, it can be very sandboxy. It's, it feels. Hmm. You can give someone a quest, right? I can have the magistrates tell you, guess what? You're going to go and you're going to figure out who killed Lord Bathroy. And you're going to find out why he died and, uh, who stole his bone scepter. Okay. I'll go figure that out. um, you can be that directive, but even then someone says, well, I've got it. I wonder if I could sell it. There's like five thieves guilds. There's a thieves guild around every fucking corner here. I wonder if I could sell it? I don't even have to go back to that magistrate. Maybe I could get away with that. It, beca- it gets because all those features and options are around you, like immediately around you. That's a very good point. The sandbox piece. It does. It could be daunting if you're not prepared for that, or you don't have a decent way to structure Things to make the sandbox, uh, I guess, put uh, almost a smaller sandbox inside the larger one, right? (laughs) Where they're only encountering certain areas or certain places of it.
0: Well, if you're a game master like myself, whatever they're going to do, you just, you just, you know, (laughs) stick your thumb in that sucker and you just twist and twist until it's painful. Like, for example, if they're in town... You know, and they're maybe in a bar, and the bar breaks out in a fight for whatever reason, and the watch comes along. Well, wow, there's only a few people that are going to be guilty of starting the trouble. That's going to be the party members. Usually, the
1: guys with the blood on them. Yeah, it's usually them.
0: Yeah, I mean, it splatters all over, and obviously they're, that, you know, they're part of that, and they've probably incited that in some, some way or another. And so that becomes a problem for them. And when they yep. don't address that problem, somebody else will. And if they think they're just going to wander off to another neighborhood, I, I just uh, don't see it happening.
1: Not always that easy.
0: No, it's not that easy.
1: The other thing I could see as a potential downside or a or, uh, thing to be cognizant of is when we talked about culture and it's all everywhere. And, oh, my gosh, they, eat with the, they don't eat with their left hand. They only eat with their right. This is weird. Oh, they have fruit at every meal. Why do they do that? I can't stand fruit, but I, I eat these damn grapes. Um, sometimes that's for some groups that's only fun once in a while. You have to make sure in a city, right? So they go meet the elves, you have a 50 minute little spiel of how crazy their feeding patterns are out here in the woods. Like, wow, that was whoo boy, those elves are kind of wacky. Off we go, go kill the Lich King. Um, but if you're in a city at every corner, every shop, everything, every NPC, um, there's a level of depth you have to kind of gauge. Every time you encounter a new person or a new something, you don't have to ma- have it be a uh, a study in food habits in Waterdeep, a study in beer making in Avalon. It doesn't have to go like that. <laughs> you can shorten things up, right? You could say, "This is what is this stuff? This this beer is really good. It's dark. It's got this crazy. Yeah, it's called button beer. It's made from these uh, death cap mushrooms. It's uh, you guys know this. It's come, wow. That's wow. That's crazy. Button beer. Damn, this shit crazy. Done." You don't have to go, well, they also make another type of beer with a different type of mushroom, you know, fucking you go too much into it. Then it becomes me explaining to you how sexy, cool my city is. And I said, sexy, cool again, didn't I? God damn it. Oh, um. anyway, um, it becomes more me telling you how cool the world is versus you experiencing it. So I think you can less is more in some of those cases. Sometimes people want to dig into it. You could go for a while. But it doesn't have to be every meal, every shopkeeper, every everything has to be a 15-minute dissertation on whatever habits there happen to be. Make sense? Yeah, absolutely, man. Should we move on? We I think, we've, sh- I think we should. we've kind of beat this one.
0: Yeah. If you've run a large urban campaign or a series of adventures that took place in a large city and let us know some of the things that you might have had to tackle or the players threw at you that may not have uh, been in your prep book.
1: Yeah. If you have other questions about it too, like I said, I've been doing this for a while now. I really like it. I have a lot of fun with it. I think I'm quite good at it. I'm having a lot of fun with it and people seem to enjoy it. Um, But if you have a question like, hey, I tried this. It fell on me. Have you tried that? Have you seen this or whatever? Um, Source the group. Hit us up with it. We'll be happy to talk about it in a a call and BS or something or let us know on one of our social media sites and we'll, we'll chat it out with folks. So come at us with the goodies.
0: All right, you heard the cue. Now it's up for die roll. Two to four miscellaneous points of gaming geekery. We want to bring to your attention. I've got a couple. uh, Brett's got one. i got a couple. And we've got one. uh, we got two from Israel. Yeah, Israel. He's all pumping that stuff out. I wonder if he's like, maybe he's like a secret. Like, these are all his websites. They could be.
1: (laughs) All right, the only one I found that I thought was really worthy for this crew out here is there's a facsimile now available with the Voynich Manuscript. Is basically the untranslatable, um, it's these weird and enigmatic medieval manuscript in its full form has been, I think, Yale University, yes, they released a book that recreates it. So go out there and take a look at it. It's one of those things that it's great elliptonic uh, fun. It's um, no one can translate it. Um, they can't tell if it's a book of herbalism, is it a book of alchemy? What is it? Um, but if nothing else, uh, it's... It's really great fodder for a game. It could drive people mad. It could be part of a Cthulhu plot or anything along those lines. So, it's good stuff. I had to had to tell people about it. Sean over to you.
0: Cody Lewis's YouTube channel, Taken 20, features Roll 20 Master series. So, again, we've talked about Roll 20. Uh, it's come up on different die rolls. So, I I mean, I went to Cody's YouTube channel. It's well done and if you want to learn some things about Roll 20, uh, I would definitely take a look, and amongst other things. I think he even covers other things, um, other than Roll Twenty, but definitely something to check out. Uh, number two for me, diversifying our gaming is a blog article on Alpha Stream. Um, it just talks about what we can do to help diversify our our gaming and our hobby. Um, some of them are very, um, uh, very deliberate. This is the word I'm looking for. Check that out. Uh, I think it's a good article that we should all just be aware of. And then uh, we've got a couple from Azrael.
1: Yeah, he's given us a link out there to some paper minis online that you can get a hold of. They're um, Excuse me, got the link out there in the show notes. They're kind of the speaking of the Voynich manuscript and uh, some old school stuff. This is your classic medieval um, city folk. You've got priests, kings, and so forth. Some nice looking medieval stuff. They're good stand-ups. I like those. That was cool. Thank you, sir. The other one that he sent to us was a. I thought this was quite topical. There is a, <coughs> excuse me, uh, Quasar Knight's Fantasy Blog is where Israel post, posted us to or po- pointed us to. Excuse me, a list of city-based source books for D and D and Pathfinder. Uh, Paul uh, Tola City by the Spire um, image there, and a uh, little article here about different places. He talks about you know uh, Bargegate, City of Brass. Um, let's see here, Barenzon. Midnight. Sean, you've got Midnight, don't you? I do have the Midnight campaign setting, yes. Yeah. Ghost Walk, uh, Greyhawk the Adventure Begins City of Stormreach, Vornheim, Complete City Kit. Uh um Zobac Gazetteer, just some cool stuff that's out there. So I thought it's um, connected to what we just said here, so hey, there you go. And Azrael as always, man, thank you very much. You've always posted some really good stuff for us. So I should say, you know, not just Azrael, every listener we've had has given us some good stuff. For the daryl here um you men and ladies keep uh, keep giving us some really good stuff some of it i've not seen or heard of before so keep it coming this is good
0: yes much appreciated thank you so much otherwise that's been uh a show of gaming and bs um next week you know what we're gonna tune into brett you know i'm not sure with the
1: <coughs> excuse me with the thanksgiving holiday and my hunting season it's kind of got me a little bit behind i've got a couple of topics uh Kind of queued up. We'll uh, we'll see what happens. I'm not sure yet. I'll let you know. Oh, suspense! It'll be a surprise! Suspense
0: it's is killing me. Yeah. You all agree? right.
1: All right. Thanks for <laughs>
0: tuning in. Thanks for subscribing. Thanks for interacting with us. Thanks for being part of the community. Just thank you, thank thank you in this time of thanks in the U.S. of A. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, uh, this is one in the bag. I'm one of your hosts, Sean.
1: And I'm Brett. And good night and good game and all.
0: Episodes of Gaming NBS come to you with the help from the following patrons. Christian Sexy Voice Serrano, Kevin Lovecraft, Joe Swick, Brett's Biggest Fan, Jeff Rademacher, Forrest de Gary, Mark-Anthony Benedetti, Bruce Cunnington, Eric Jefferson, Andy Hall, Misdirected Mark Productions, Sean Nicholson, Tim Jensen, Chris Steele, Old School DM, The Knights of the Night Crew, Palladian, Jason Blaylock, Remy Bilodeau, Jason Hobbs-Hobbs, Merkel Froile, Wayne Lumrunner Humphrey, James Carpio, Matt Caprio, Pure Mongrel, Lord Tentacle, Corey Johnston, Eric Tankar, Brandon Barnes, Mark Tasaka, Brett Pazinski, Tim Shorts, Eileen Barnes, Chad Knight, Dan LaValle, C.W. Mellencamp, Nicholas Abruzzo, Victor Wyatt, Tony the Butcher, Baker, and Craig Huber. For the cost of a coffee shop, coffee, you can support the show for an entire month. Visit gamingnbs.com forward slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Thank you.